When I heard that song for the first time, I couldn't help but wonder if people really feel that way. It didn't take me long to reflect on conversations I had had, interactions I had with people, and I realized that sometimes the junk that somebody is used to becomes so comfortable that it's harder to change it than to just stay there. And so you just live in your agony until something comes along to move you past that. And it looks like something like that is happening with the nation of Israel. Last week, uh, we started a series called I See You. And it's absolutely true. God sees you, sees everything about you, sees what's going on in your heart and your soul, knows all of it. But he doesn't just want to see you, he wants to do something. He wants to be a part of repairing, restoring, healing, guiding, changing you. And so he comes to you and he finds a way to do that. Sometimes we don't give God the opportunity to do that because we think he's forgotten us. Like we're out of his sight. He really doesn't know what's going on with us. I'll tell you this. If anybody had any reason to believe that they had been forgotten, it's the nation of Israel as slaves in Egypt. 400 years. I've tried to wrap my mind around that. We haven't even been a country yet for 250 years. We need to add on a few more years and then go another 150 to get the idea of how long they would have been in that situation. Believing that maybe God has forgotten them and walked away. But we're kind of dealing with a section of Scripture where God is trying to come to them and communicate I see you, and it's time for me to do something. It's time for me to do something. And so we've been connecting two sections of Scripture. That's what we did last week. We took Exodus chapter 1, which is about the 400 years that they were in slavery. We know we're told three things that happened to them. They're horrible things, but they're detailed in Exodus chapter 1. And then we're linking it to something that goes on in Exodus chapter 4. God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to give you some signs so that when people see these, two things will happen. One, they'll believe you, but two, they'll know that I see them and understand their misery. Which is what kind of made me curious. How how did God using those signs actually accomplish that? So last week we looked at one of the signs. One of the signs was they took some water out of the Nile River, Moses poured it on the ground, it became blood. And it was connected to one of the atrocities that had happened to Israel and Egypt. Their baby boys were taken and pitched like trash into the Nile River. So when that Nile water was poured on the ground, it was blood. This was blood water. God knew what was going on. So we're going to kind of continue this journey. We want to look at these other signs. And if this works, what should happen next is we should be able to look at the second sign. We're going kind of backwards in the story. We looked at the third sign. It was the easiest to understand. We're going to look at the second sign, and that should 
relate to the second atrocity in Exodus chapter 1 if this works out. Okay, I think it does, so that's what we're going to do, I'll, and hopefully I'll provide enough evidence for you. What's the second sign? If, you're, if you recall, the first one was snake into staff, or staff into snake, hand turned to leprosy, then healed, and then water. So Moses tells, or God tells Moses, put your hand in your cloak, take it out, and when he does, it's covered white with leprosy. That is a death sentence in their culture. You, you would be actually ostracized from your whole community, put out in the wilderness, and just wait until you died. No support, no help. You're in trouble. So then, he, then God says, put it back in your cloak, take it out, and he was healed. So just, just on the surface, if we just did this, is there anything in Exodus chapter 1 where something seems one way, but it's not. He seemed like he was about to have leprosy, but then he, he doesn't. And it was about life and death. Well, it turns out that this was um, the, the week we looked at last week was not the first attempt to kill male children of the Israelites. Th there was a second one. And um, this one's a bit more complicated. There's a whole lot more to it. And I'll, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you the easy ones to think about. I'm going to give you the easy ones to think about because we don't have enough time to do them all. Um, the underlying truth that's going to come out here is going to be so important that if we don't spend time on that, I'm not sure what we would be doing with this text. But there's something important here that I want you to see, and so we're going to do that. So we have the first sign where, okay, it seems like something's happened. It's life and death. Where does that come about? Well, in Exodus chapter 1, we're told about the second situation that happens with Israel that's this horrible thing that's happening to them while they're slaves. It starts in verse 15, but let me give you the details in verse 16. The he here is Pharaoh. No, that's later. Pharaoh says, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So this was happening to Israel as slaves. What was happening is that somebody would show up to your house to help you deliver that baby and they were instructed to somehow find a way to snuff the life out of that child and to convince you that what you had instead was a stillborn. This had to be done secretly because who in the world would call somebody for help if you knew they would show up with the intent of killing your child? So this is, this is very sly. And, and God is addressing this for a reason because um, he's about to spend most of this text talking about two women who were midwives who were named in the text. And it's worth noting that both of these women decide not to cooperate with Pharaoh. They don't go along with this. And you may ask yourself, well, why are they in the text? Is it true that maybe all of them didn't go along with it? Well, no. Um, it's likely in the text to help you understand why 
Pharaoh moves, moves to phase three later, like, I'm going to kill them all. You can, any, any Egyptian can grab a baby and throw them in the water. Anybody can do that. That happens after he tried to get a select group to do his dirty work. And some of them said no. I also suspect this is how the Israelites found out that this was going on. Because for a while, they would have been fooled. Somebody would have come, delivered a baby, found a way to suffocate it, and then looked at the mom and said, your baby is stillborn. Your baby has died. And then you would be heartbroken, and they would go away, mission accomplished. Now, this is, this is kind of horrible stuff. So, so far, we have two similarities. You, you would tell the person that the baby was dead when it actually wasn't initially. So it seemed one way when it wasn't. And it was about life and death. There, there were people who were killing these babies. I don't think God would be addressing this the way he does unless people were doing this. By the way, there's only two midwives mentioned. Every historian, every biblical scholar that I looked at said the size of Israel would have required far more than two midwives for them to take care of a group of people that large with no contraception. They were having a lot of babies, and so there would have been a lot of activity. So there were people who were involved in this that had no problem following Pharaoh's instructions. They were snuffing out the life of babies, convincing moms that their babies were stillborn terrible, right? Now the question is, is there any, any other kind of connections that we can make? Is there anything that would tell us that that sign of leprosy on their hands is somehow still connected to this stillborn thing? We have two lightly. I'm going to give you two more. In Numbers chapter 12, uh, there's a section of scripture where once again, there is a sudden happening of leprosy. If you'll recall, Miriam is trying to overthrow Moses. She wants to lead the children of Israel, and she tries a coup. God calls a meeting, and when he leaves that meeting, this is what happens. This is verse 10. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. She's in trouble. Moses knows this, but Moses has seen this before. He's seen it suddenly show up, and he knows it can suddenly go away. So he starts praying, but his prayer is a little odd. Look, look at what he adds in verse 12. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from his mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. See, in their culture, they associated the look, the visuals of a past baby with somebody who's got an ashen skin of leprosy. So this was, this was already in their culture, and it was something that he referred to here like everybody would understand what was going on. So when he makes that connection to leprosy and a stillborn baby, they would have, when they had stillborn babies and they're seeing leprosy on the hand, they would have made the connection too. They, remember, they needed pictures to operate on. They didn't, they didn't have any ability to read and write. They were slaves. So this picture would have made some sense to them because it's already in their culture. 
Um, the fourth thing, the fourth link that I would uh, probably draw here is that clearly there's deception going on. In the case of God, he makes Moses think he has leprosy and then it goes away, and that's for illustrative purposes. But the deception going on with the children of Israel at this point is resulting in all kinds of babies dying, just being killed as they're delivered. God knows all of this. He's concerned about all of this. And, and Israel would have had to known about this by now too. Like if he's going to show them a sign that says he understands their misery, then they would have had to understand that this had been going on. And I suspect they did because those two midwives narked the Pharaoh out. And so then Pharaoh had to go and say, if you're an Egyptian of any kind, you can grab a baby, throw him in the water, nobody cares, go for it. But they knew. They knew that they had been lied to. And have you, have you ever been in that place before where somebody lied to you and you believed them? The guilt that you feel from that like the embarrassment and shame that come. That happened to me recently. Happened to, I got scammed recently, and I should have known it was happening. Like it had all the hallmarks of it. And I still sent the dude some money. And I was like, after it was over, I was like, oh my word, am I 75? If you're 75, don't take that personally, right? Like, how did that happen? You know, I was, I was embarrassed by it. Horrified, like what a fool you've been. And so now you've got insult on injury. And, and that's what's happening here. These people have been wounded. These people were lied to, straight up lied to. Your baby is not alive when in fact it was. And when they finally figured this out, I don't know how they figured this out. I assume that it had to be those two ladies. Maybe they also just saw there is such a large number of miscarriages and they all happen to be boys. How can they all be boys? This is kind of odd that we've got a stillborn problem with just boys. I don't know how it happened, but it's not surprising to me that a lie was told because the scriptures tell us that Satan is the father of lies, and it's not surprising that his fingerprints would be all over this. He's, he's a professional at this sort of thing. I, I'm going to convince you that this baby that you felt alive in your belly being delivered wasn't actually alive when it got out. That, that's how distorted and messed up this stuff was. And yet, it's amazing what happens to us and how we'll believe a lie. By the way, I think sometimes we think we're smarter than the average person. But I'm going to tell you right now, Satan and the crew who left heaven with him have been telling lies for thousands of years. They're very good at it. They're very good at speaking to the human nature that we have and convincing us to go in a direction that does not honor God. And sometimes they can do it with big lies like you see right here in the text. Th this is huge. They're, they're convincing a whole group of people that the death of their babies are no big deal. 
There have been other ones in history where people have said, you know what, I guess Jewish people aren't really human. Let's put them in concentration camps and kill them off. And you know what's odd about what's here in the Scripture and that? Whole nations joined in. Like you wouldn't think that you could fool that many people with something that big. But when you're a really good liar, the big ones can land. The big ones can have an effect. They can be hard to figure out. But I'll tell you this. This is what I'm convinced of. The majority of lies that you will hear throughout your life will not be big, they'll be small, and they'll be personal. There'll be something that's told to you by somebody who was unkind. It'll be a whisper in your head that you think might be accurate or real. And you'll take that in, and it will start to mess with your heart. It will shape you. I, I wrote down a few that I've heard from a lot of people. I've heard, I'm not good enough. I don't think people will like me unless I achieve. So I've got I've to perform. I've got to be some level of perfect so that people will like me, so that I can be respected, so that I can be somebody. And you have this dread always at the core of who you are that you're just not enough. You're never going to satisfy. And it haunts you. I've heard people say, I'm dumb. What does it matter if I should work hard to learn this or not? I don't have the capacity. It's a lie, but it's been accepted. I've heard I'm alone a lot. Nobody sees me, nobody understands me, nobody knows me. I am alone in this life. Even when I'm with my friends or with my family, I am ultimately alone. Nobody really cares about who I am. It's a lie. I'm terrible at this role. You mean the role God put you in, designed you for, gave you in this world so that you could do something of value in it. And in your mind, you're ready to give up and walk away. I hear people say, there's no hope. I'm done. I don't think I can do this anymore. And they kind of push away, sometimes from important relationships sometimes from friends who could have been of help to them. They just go dark. It's a lie. The number of small lies that you get, overwhelming in a lifetime. But God sees you. He sees the lies that have been fed into your life over the course of your life. And he even sees the ones that you've accepted and created your own reality with, a reality that's not based on what's true. It's based on what you think is true. And you want to know what's scary about that? When you go down that path, when the, the thing that you believe is actually a lie and it's, and it's now shaping your life, you can do all kinds of wicked damage 
And I have evidence for it. I'd never seen this before. I came across this. Um, I'm going to say accidentally. I don't believe very many accidents. I was in a men's Bible study. I was reading a section of scripture um, doing that study. And there was something that is linked back into this story that's not included anywhere else in the text. It's never mentioned anywhere else. Stephen is about ready to be stoned to death. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he decides, I'm going to say some stuff. And he goes off. It's awesome. You should go read it. But what he does is he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking truth. And in this case, he speaks a truth that's not mentioned anywhere else in the text. We're, we're not given this anywhere else in Exodus that this is happening. But listen to what happens to somebody who believes a lie and follows it and lets it shape their life. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 19. This is where the he is Pharaoh. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. Who threw out the newborn babies? Israelites did. They felt forced to do that. By the way, this is, this is not the first time in Jewish history where something like this will happen. The last time I went to Israel, our plans got scuttled because of a rainstorm. And, um, and we drove and got to hear the story of a city of 4,000 people that was being surrounded by Rome and they realized that we're gonna lose. So they took and they threw all of their kids and themselves off a cliff nearby and killed themselves. The thought was, it would be better if they died by my hand than if I let somebody else kill them. Look, I'd never processed this before, but think about this just for a second. If Moses is in a basket in the Nile River and he's not found by Pharaoh's daughter, what happens to him? He floats down the river. He floats down the river with a hope that maybe somebody might find him and rescue him, but we can't, so we're just going to put him on the river. Pharaoh's daughter knew this was a Hebrew child. Apparently, this was a practice. You just took your own baby out and let them go on the Nile hoping that maybe somebody might find that child. They were so messed up by the lies that were being told to them that they were cooperating. And can you imagine the guilt they had to be carrying in the process? It's overwhelming. The only, the only word I can think of to describe this is complete and utter mess. What an utter mess you would have internally to have cooperated in the killing of your own child because you felt forced. But God sees all of this. He sees what's going on, and it's not enough that he sees, he wants to act. And he has a lot of choices. He could redeem, he could restore, he could heal, he could forgive, or he could act with justice, 
Like he could bring justice to this thing. And I think there's evidence that he does. I want to show you something that kind of links back into this story. It's really interesting. In Leviticus chapter 13, um, you're going to find seven verses in Leviticus 13 that mention um, leprosy or a skin-defiling disease. That's what many of your translation would say. There's a Hebrew word that's used to describe that condition. It's nega. It's like the beginning of negative, nega. Maybe you can practice it. Say nega with me. Nega, nega. Try it again. Nega, yeah, okay, you got it. That nega has a couple meanings in the scriptures. One is a leprosy, a skin-defiling disease, but there's a second meaning for it too. Plague. It can mean plague. Now, you're sitting there thinking, ooh, there were 10 of those in Exodus. But here's where it gets interesting. Not all of them are referred to as a plague. Many of them are, but only one of them is referred to as a nega. Want to guess which one? Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more nega on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he'll let you go. The one more nega was the death of a firstborn son. They would lose livestock, they would lose their own children as well. And again, they're using this connection, this Nega, the skin-defiling disease, would have looked like the death of a person. So there would have been this ashen skin that would have been connected. And you've been, man, this is serious. This is a harsh judgment. It is. There's going to be a lot of people who pass from this. But understand, up until this point, the nation of Israel had been lied to about what was happening to their children. And on top of that, they had been so convinced of the lie that they thought it might be better themselves if they also took the life of their own children at times. So it's pretty ugly, but it's been pretty ugly up to this point too. God's harsh treatment seems to be justified. And so God steps up to this. By the way, I, I don't think when you find these little connections of nega to nega that it's coincidental. There's too, there is too much purposeful writing in the scriptures for something like that to be an accident. God's trying to convince people that not only have I seen what you're going through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell judgment on this, and it's connected to this horrible thing that happened to you. It's connected. I want you to know I'm standing up for you. Which raises the question for me, why, why did it take 400 years for that to happen? And, and I, I've come to this conclusion, and you can decide for yourselves, but I think God often acts. He does something when you're ready to respond, and if you're not ready to respond, He waits patiently. 
See, I think a lot of people have looked at what happened with Israel and said, God walked away for 400 years. I don't understand why God would do that. Here's how I think about this. Try this one on for size. A famine happens. Jacob takes his family down to where his son Joseph can provide food and protection for them. And living under Joseph's protection is like a a wave of blessing after blessing, and it's easy and it's good. And when the famine stops, not once does it cross their mind that maybe they should go back to the land that God wanted them to be in. Maybe they should go back to trusting him for their rainfall and their crops. Maybe they should go back and trust. Instead, they stay where it's easy. And after a period of time, they start associating the gods of Egypt with their ease, with the land of Egypt, with how plentiful and rich they've become. And then it turns on them. But I find it interesting that there is not a single Israelite voice in that nation who stands up and says, I think we should turn our hearts back to God. I think they'd lost sight of him for that long, for 400 years, wasn't even on their mind. The gods of Egypt were. The gods of Egypt, they would have a hard time unloading even after they left Egypt. These guys were so comfortable in their misery that they never even considered the God of their fathers as a rescue plan. This is why it's so important for us to remember that God sees us. He's the one who sees what's going on. He's the one who sees what we've accepted. He's the one who sees the lies that are happening with us. Let me just tell you the truth. Because this is what happened with Israel. Because they walked away for so long, the one person who could have told them the truth, guided them, given them instructions, they're not connected with anymore. They're open to all the lies that they can take in. And I want you to understand what's happening right now in our lives. Right now, you are being oppressed and manipulated by the culture that you live in. And if you think that's not true, your eyes are not open enough. This is Satan's playland, man. He sets up values that are opposed to God and then convinces as many people as possible that those things are right and true and good. Can I give you an example? This is is stuff I hear from people on a regular basis. There is a belief out there that you should just do you. You do you. And what they, what they mean by this is, why don't you decide what's true for you? Just decide whatever you think is true, whatever feels like it's right, and as long as you're honest about that and you're true to that, you'll be fine. You can be the truest version of who God made you to be, except it's who you made you to be. Because here's the, tr- here's the truth. God made you on purpose for a purpose, and it wasn't so that you could follow your own truth. It was so that you could follow his. And yet, we have a whole bunch of people 
who actively believe that as long as I determine what's true and follow that, I'll be fine. I'll be in a good place. You'll actually be a hero of this culture. And what you don't realize when you do that is that you've just walked away from the protection that God offers you. See, what God wanted when he sent his son Jesus was to find a way to have a relationship with you. A relationship that was like real, where he speaks into your life, where he gives you value, where he says, hey, don't do that, where he says, hey, I want to encourage you to do this. Why don't you step into this thing that I made you to do? And there's a genuine kind of connection with the Holy Spirit in your life that gives you meaning and purpose that you live with. You can walk away from all of that if you believe that I'm just going to do me. And you open yourself up to all those lies. All those lies. You're not enough. You're dumb. There's no hope. You're not beautiful. On and on. And eventually what happens is it starts to shape how you live. Can I tell you right now, there are people in our community who cut themselves and starve themselves because of lies that they have believed over the course of their life. These are not from God into your life. This is God's enemies celebrating that you are willing to accept whatever garbage gets dished out in your life. And you get skewed. The purpose of being connected with Jesus is that you can be in communion with somebody who deeply sees into the soul that you have and can, who can give you guidance and instruction. And when you walk away from that, you're in trouble. That's exactly what happened to Israel. They walked away from God and then spent time in their misery and became so much more comfortable with it that they didn't see how they could be happy. Did you hear how that song at the top started? It said, I know it's been a couple years since we've talked. I'm telling you right now, that is the formula for you finding yourself in a place where you'll believe all kind of lies. You put yourself away from God for a period of time like that, and the lies of this culture will come at you like waves. And eventually you'll believe that you know you better than God knows you. And what you need is to reconnect with a God who not only sees you, but wants to do something about the lies, that you, the lies that you have taken into the core of who you are, the lies that are shaping how you live. But you get to make a choice. Israel had to decide, would they believe? Would they accept that God could see their misery and understand their situation or not? And when they realized that, they worshiped. I'm just going to ask you, do you need to adjust course at all towards Christ to put yourself in a place where you can hear the truth instead of the lies that are like just overflowing into your life? That's a choice you could make, and I hope you will. I want to pray for you as you process that.
God, um, you had this deep, intense love for Israel. The scripture said that you felt that they were your firstborn. I mean, when you understand that Jesus was your firstborn, that, man, that is saying something, how much love you must have had for them. That's how you feel about us. You have that same kind of love because Jesus came and sacrificed so that we could have a connection with you, a connection to truth, to hear when we've accepted something that's off base, that's harming us, that's kind of directing our life down a path that leads away from you. You're available, God. You want to be a part of the journey that rescues us, that speaks the truth into our lives, that tells us how much value that we have, that tells us there is hope, that tells us we cannot give up. God, you have that desire. But what's true is that we get to make a choice. We can choose you and open ourselves up to that kind of relationship or we can hold you at bay. And God, there are people with their arms up resisting you right now this morning. I ask that you would speak to their heart. Convince them if they would just put the barriers down that you would do what only you can do. That's heal, that's tell the truth. Let's bring them back to who they were always meant to be. God, speak to the hearts and minds of those who need to hear from you this morning. I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.